0: Do not be anxious. Anybody feeling anxious this morning? You know, uh, there's a common Christian axiom. You probably all heard it. It goes something like this. We shouldn't be ruled by our emotions. Instead, we should be guided by the truth. Don't be ruled by your emotions. Instead, be guided by the truth. That's a good axiom, right? Right? But it doesn't mean that our emotions are inherently evil. We're going to be talking about emotions over the next two Sundays, today and next week, as we consider our study of Proverbs. I think the Proverbs has a lot to say to us about our emotions. And again, emotions are not inherently an evil thing. You know, the axioms say don't be ruled by them. It doesn't mean that they're bad or that we shouldn't use them. Imagine a world without emotion. Imagine a world without compassion or joy or sorrow or delight and you'd have a very mechanical and cold world and i would say this you'd have a world that's void of the image of an impassioned god our emotions are meant to help us reflect the one who created us in his image right and they're 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 given to us so that we would experience the people and the world that he created for his glory. So emotions are a part of the image of God reflecting in us. They are a they're a gift from God. They're part of our, our, our divine, divinely inspired and, and reflecting nature. And yet our emotions, like everything else that's been created, have been broken, right? They were affected by the fall in the garden. And so, like all of God's good gifts, our emotions are often perverted by our sinful nature. They get sort of flipped upside down. What was meant to reflect God is easily turned upside down in such a way as to mar the image of God and ultimately even oppose it, right? But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, all things are redeemable. All things have been redeemed and our emotions are included in that. Our emotions are redeemable in Christ. So it's important for us as we study the Scriptures here and as we look at Proverbs specifically to talk about redeemed versus unredeemed or godly versus ungodly emotions. As uh, To use the terminology that we've been using through our study of, of Proverbs, wise versus foolish, right? Wise emotion versus foolish emotion. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we've talked about that, And if wisdom, as we've defined it, is to learn to see things the way that God sees them, then our emotions are a great place for us to focus because the old axiom exists for a good reason. right? We are indeed often ruled by our broken experiences and broken expressions of our emotions in a way that does mar God's image and does do damage to our own souls. So I want to do this up front. I want to give a, a couple of definitions. These are definitions that I came up with on my own. I hope they're, hope they're good. Um, of the difference between a wise emotion and foolish emotion. So let me put this up on the screen for you. All right, Wise emotions would be this. They are righteously appropriate and measured responses to our experiences. So note that we've got righteously appropriate. Right. Guided by the work of Christ in our, in our hearts, right? The renewed newness of man that he's creating in us. Righteously appropriate and measured responses to our experiences, rightly submitted to what is honorable and true. That's partly why I wanted Simeon to read that opening text for us this morning as our scripture reading. Whatever is true and right and noble, think on these things and let those things what is true, guide us in what we respond to. We don't want to respond to falsehood. We don't want to respond to our own deceptions. We want to respond to what's right and true in a measured, godly way. That's a wise use of emotion. A foolish use of emotion would would be the opposite of that, basically. An unrighteous, inappropriate, and poorly measured response to our experiences and I would say often guided by what's dishonorable or untrue, right? So when we are, when we're given to thinking wrongly about things, we're going to react wrongly to those things, right? But also I would say this, or sometimes determining, and I'll sort of air quote this, truth by its own flawed vision, meaning this, it's sort of like the tail wagging the dog. If my emotions are ruling me and my emotions are being driven by what's you know, uh, an unrighteous response to what I'm perceiving to be around me. I can perceive truth. I can sort of create a new vision of truth, truth, in my own mind that's not really true. How often do our emotional reactions m- lead us to believe things to be true and hold the world to a standard that that isn't really true and cause more and more friction because, you know, we're letting the tail wag the dog. The tail being my emotions and the dog being the truth. So to be ruled by your emotions as the axiom state is to give in to those foolish emotions. Well, the Proverbs have a lot to say about various human emotions, and I hope to tackle at least some, the most, I think, common ones that we often employ in foolish ways. So I, 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 I thought a lot about it this week, and, uh, and I even you know, just kind of looked up Like What are the most common human emotions? In other words, what are some of the most fundamentally human emotions? And this is what I have come up with in terms of what we will attempt to address. The first one we'll talk about is fear and anxiety. Those are related, right? Fear and anxiety. The second one, anger and bitterness. Anger and bitterness. You're preparing to get hit with that? Depression and sadness. And then I think that's as far as we'll get today. We'll go on next week and talk about jealousy and discontentment, desire and infatuation, and then shame and guilt. So let's begin. Let me pray and ask the Lord to direct our our hearts and thoughts as His Scripture leads us here. And let's begin with talking about fear and anxiety. Father, we, we approach Your Word with a reverent fear. As we approach you with that reverent fear, Lord, you are good, you are truth, you are the king, the creator, we're accountable to you, and so Lord, we come to your word to submit ourselves under it. We ask you by your spirit to, to work in us, Lord, I pray that you You'd bring out in us, Lord, a a clear understanding of how our emotions, for good or for bad, are, are operating in our lives. We pray that you'd work in us and, Lord, help us to respond to you in obedience, that we would submit ourselves rightly to you and live as people of the Word, who are not just hearing it, but doing it. By, of course, your grace, the power of your Spirit, by the work of Christ on the cross in us, Lord. May we be a people who bring glory to You. We pray that in His name. Amen. So Let's talk a little bit about fear and anxiety. Proverbs 12.25 Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. By the way, you're, you're pretty used to me kind of going to a passage and sticking with it. We're going to be all over the Proverbs here today. I'm going to try to put all the relevant passages up on the screen for you. So we're starting here. Proverbs 12.25 Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then we could say rightly this, the beginning of folly is the fear of anything else. Right? The fear of the Lord is marked by reverent awe. The kind of fear we're talking about as folly is the kind of fear that makes you scared. The kind of fear that makes you worry. And I think I can speak for all of us when I say this. Fear stinks. right? That kind of fear that, that makes you scared, that makes you worry, that as the, as the text here say, weighs us down. That's no way to live. That's what it means here by saying it, 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 it weighs us down. It stinks. It's no way to live. So what is it that we're so often afraid of? What makes us so anxious? I think it would be fair to say that it's usually one of two fears. The fear of man would be one of them. And the fear of bad circumstances would be the other. Let's talk a little bit about the fear of man. Fearing people means fearing whether or not they will approve of you. And we're constantly looking for affirmation from others in order to give us a sense of self-worth. You you, you may recognize that. You may not recognize it. It's always true. We're constantly looking for other people to affirm us, to give us that sense of self-worth. Will they accept me? Will they like me? I'm pretty sure that Instagram and Facebook only exist because of this fear. They only exist because of this deep-seated fear of man is so pervasive in us all the time that we've created these things to to give us more opportunities to get more affirmation. By the way, think about this for a second. Those of you who are active on social media accounts like Instagram or Facebook, and I know most of us are, I am too, nobody, nobody has multiple hundreds of friends. You do on Instagram, right? You do on Facebook, but in real life, nobody has multiple hundreds of friends. So why do we have multiple hundreds of friends on our social media accounts? I, I, think, I think, honestly, we could say we're accumulating for ourselves potential admirers who will like us. But not really us, right? Who will like these, these sort of idealized images of the perfect lives and perfect self-images that we'll post that don't actually reflect our actual reality, I think Ray Ortlund says it really well. He says, Our God is human approval. Our heaven is the spotlight. Our hell is bad reviews. Our ritual of worship is keeping up appearances. And again, I would say that's no way to live. Right? That's crushing. It crushes us. It hollows us out because we have the wrong fear. So that's fear of man. Or... We get anxious over the possibility of bad circumstances. What if I can't pay rent? What if I or a loved one gets sick? Or gets hurt? What if I don't get that job? What if I don't get into that school? What if my expectations aren't met? There's a fear you'll face daily. What if I lose my freedoms? What if there's a terrorist attack? I mean, I could go on and on all day. There's a million things that we worry about. But the mind that is anxious about mere possibilities is a miserable mind. Corey ten Boom says it really well. and once said this really well. She said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. Proverbs 12.25, again. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. But a good word makes him glad. We need a good word, don't we? In the midst of our fear, in the midst of our anxiety, we need a good word. And here's the good word that we need. It's that the Bible doesn't tell us that there won't be things to be anxious about or to be afraid of. Okay? Okay? The Bible never tells us there won't be things to be anxious about or be afraid of. But it does tell us what to do when we have those worries. You know this passage well. 1 Peter 5.7 It instructs you to cast all of your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Cast all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That's a good word. And here's, here's why it's good. Notice that God doesn't want us to hold on to those anxieties and fears. That's something that we often do. It seems kind of, kind of crazy, but we're kind of crazy people, right? We tend to hold on to our anxieties. We tend to hold on to our fears. I think we do that because it's it's some means of, of a control mechanism. I can't control the thing I'm worried about, so I'll control my fear about it somehow. We hold on to it. But but the Lord says, no, no. no. Cast it away. Cast it away. But not just anywhere. We're not to cast our anxieties on other people, even though that's what we typically do, right? We like to cast our anxieties on our family members. We like to cast our anxieties on our friends. we get worried, we pour it out on them, right? You bear this. You feel my angst about this. Why do we do that? Probably for one of two reasons. The first one is a very sinful one. It's that misery just loves company. Right? Misery loves company. The second reason is that I I think we're crying out for rescue. Right? Bear this. Help with this. I, I I can't shoulder this on my own. But when we indiscriminately cast our anxiety around on other people, it only serves to fill the world with more anxiety-producing people and circumstances. So what does Jesus say? He says, no, cast your cares on Me. Me. Why? Because He's the only one who's big enough to handle them. He's the only one who's big enough to handle them. There's one who's big enough, wise enough, and powerful enough to handle all of the anxieties of all of God's people at the same time. How? Because Jesus is the one who keeps us from falling. And Jesus is the one who can present our needs before the Father's throne of grace. He's the one who died for our sins And frees us from fear by establishing us in an unshakable, unshakable hope. Cast your cares on me, he says. He's not like other people who have limits to their ability to help. Other people can't settle our hearts. And other people may or may not ultimately care about us, right? But here we have the ultimate rescuer, Jesus, who always, always loves us. He always loves us. We go to Jesus because He cares for us, and may we never forget that nobody cares for us like He can. Nobody. We cast our cares upon Him, and He extends to us God's care, and God's love, We say, Jesus, here's my anxiety, and He gives us peace. Now, that's not to say we won't have fears in life again. The Bible doesn't promise us that. But it's our hope that we always have someone to care for us. We always have someone to bear our burden. We have a Savior who went to the cross and carried our fears and anxieties with Him and put it to death and rose again in victory that we too might walk in that newness of life. We have assurance of our salvation and peace through the cross of Christ. Let's talk a little bit about anger and bitterness. Proverbs 14.29 Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Ooh, Hasty temper. You know, we all get angry, right? If you don't get angry, then you're guilty of the sin of lying, right? You all get angry. And there's plenty of things to be angry about. And again, not all anger is bad. There's such a thing as a righteous anger. In fact, I would say the more we grow in Christ, learning to see things the way he sees them, the more sin and injustice in this world ought to make us angry. So anger in and of itself is is not a bad thing. It's right to be angry that our society can't agree that it's morally necessary to care for the unborn and at the same time care for those who've already been born with the same fervency, right? Right? It's right to be angry that scores of thousands of people are forced to flee their homelands because of persecution or starvation or political threats, and at the same time take it be angry at those who would take advantage of a crisis for personal gain. Or to be angry at a system that doesn't know how to handle the crisis. It's right to be angry over sexual trafficking and abuse or inequality due to greed Or abuse of power. It's impossible. If you're, as Christians, I'd say it's impossible to read the newspaper and not get angry about something that's going on in the world. So, anger in and of itself is rightly measured and and righteously applied. It's an extension of love, right? If we love what's good, we'll hate what's evil, just as God does. The problem, however, is that we struggle to discern those things. We, dis- we struggle to discern righteous reasons for anger from unrighteous expressions of anger. And instead of appropriate and measured responses, our hasty temper takes over and that causes us to have a hateful anger. Proverbs 14.17 says, A man of quick temper acts foolishly. A man of evil devices is hated. So when anger turns into hatred... As Proverbs 10.12 says, we stir up strife. And that's the kind of anger that exalts folly. That's the kind of anger negatively spoken of here in the text. And I think it's important for us to examine the heart attitudes that bring about a hasty temper. Have you ever had a hasty temper? Of course you have, right? What, What brings that about? I would say this. There's a strong connection with pride. There's a strong connection with sinful pride it's usually more about winning a battle isn't it than it is about righting a wrong that's why we get right we're we're trying to assert ourselves we're we're sort of acting like the 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 ape the gorilla the the lion that we're we're our our cackles are going up hasty strikes aren't usually well thought out responses they're knee-jerk emotional reactions you ever lost your temper and, and lashed out at a family member or a friend That's the most rhetorical of rhetorical questions, right? Of course you have. Ask yourself what you were trying to accomplish. What were you trying to accomplish? Parents, maybe this is a good application for you. You lashed out at your kids, right? Emotional reaction of anger. You've yelled at them. What were you trying to accomplish? Do you think your outburst was effective in shaping a constructive, corrective learning moment? Or do you think it was just a loud display of force in an attempt to gain the upper hand? Again, in a power struggle. Because your pride was wounded. We yell in anger because we think we need to be heard. Think about that. We think we need to be heard. We think our opinions matter than other people's opinions. We want the louder voice. Not necessarily the truth, mind you but our opinions. But here's the overwhelming message of Scripture. This is humbling. We're to humble our opinions before Christ. Humble your opinions before Christ. Ask yourself this question, is what I'm angry about, am I angry about it in a righteous way because this is a gospel issue? Or is this just a me issue? humble our opinions before Christ. And it's really hard to do that, right? It's hard to humble ourselves in this way. I put this up on the screen too. Proverbs 16.32 Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Solomon's saying here, our hearts are harder to conquer than a city. That's a bold statement, but it's true. Therefore, the person he's saying who gains this kind of self-control is better than the general who gains a city. Better in, I think, two ways. The first one is that slowness of anger is more effective and it's more powerful. It's more effective and it's more powerful. We can raise our voice. We can conquer a city. We can conquer a friendship. We can conquer our household. We can exert and raise cackles, right? And, And it might be effective at least in the short term. We might win the argument, but we'll lose the war. It's more effective and more powerful in the long run to affect people with, even if anger guided by love that directs towards truth. Far more powerful and far more effective the, I think another reason why it's so hard for us to do that is because so often we're, we feel personally offended by that which makes us angry. And again, that, 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 that raises our pride. Look at Proverbs 19.11. It's on the screen. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. One of the most common reasons for anger is because somebody did you wrong. Right? They sinned against you. They hurt you. And again, there may be cause there for righteous anger to have its place, but we've got to be very careful here to avoid righteous anger turning into hatred. Righteous anger turning into revenge. When we're wronged, we have one of two choices if you really boil it down to the simplicity of things. The first one is we can hold on to bitterness. And the second one is we can offer forgiveness. That's your choice. You can be bitter or you can forgive. You know, there's a famous quote that's attributed mostly to Nelson Mandela in modern times. I think others have repeated it in different forms. But he said this, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You put it like that, it's, it's, it's pretty enlightening as to how foolish it is to hold on to bitterness, right? Drinking a poison and waiting for the other person to die. And it's not Christ-like to do that. So for the believer, the pathway forward is through forgiveness. Always. Now here's where I think our modern sensibilities struggle with the concept of forgiveness. And I I think it's important to to highlight this. Forgiveness in in our modern culture, in our modern society, is often frowned upon or not offered We'll give lip service to it, but in our heart of hearts, we won't offer it because we're somehow afraid that to forgive is to deny justice. If you're on Twitter, if you're reading the newspaper, you, know, you, you, you hear kind of the, the modern mantras of the world. It's, we want justice, right? So whether it's a, it's a Me Too movement or whether it's racial issues or whether, whatever it is, There's this constant, you've wronged me. I, I will not forgive. I will not, I will not let go. I will yell. I will make my voice heard because justice needs to happen here. Now there's a, there's a right motive behind that. Justice is good. Justice is needed. The problem is we say justice doesn't come through forgiveness. It comes through retribution or punishment. And that's antithetical, listen, that's antithetical to a right understanding of the gospel. Believing the gospel directs our unrighteous expressions of anger towards forgiveness in two critical ways. The first one is that it reminds us of the mercy of God. No one will ever offend you Anywhere close to the degree that you've offended a holy God. And yet, God, in his love towards us, offers to us mercy. I'm talking about you being a believer, I'm talking about Christians. He's extended to us mercy, he's covered the offense. The second, though, thing that's important to remember about what the gospel tells us is that it not only reminds us of the mercy of God, but at the same time, the justice of God. You were given mercy, not because God chose to do away with justice, but because God chose to fulfill His righteous justice in His own Son. Justice was met. Sin was dealt with by Christ. So if we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we're angry because we felt like a brother or sister has offended us, we've forgotten the mercy of God and the justice of God. Their offense has been dealt with and the mercy shown to me, I'm called to show to them. The justice of God is also evident not only through the cross of Christ, but through the return of Christ. The wrath of God has been and will be poured out. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So for us to hold on to a grudge or to feel like we're unable to extend forgiveness because it will lack justice is to deny that the the righteous wrath of God exists and will be carried out. It's been carried out at the cross and it will be carried out on the last day. God will handle it. Justice will not go unmet. So in our anger, we must be so careful to avoid hatred. We must be so careful to avoid this sense that we must play God. We can forgive because we can trust in the forgiveness and the mercy and the justice of God. The last thing I want to talk about this morning is depression and sadness. Proverbs 15, 13 A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. Similarly in Proverbs 17.22, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Do you feel like you've got dry bones today? Or a crushed spirit today? It's not an uncommon thing. Before we go any further, I think it's important to state that depression and sadness can be unlike anxiety and anger or uh, bitterness and all those other emotional responses in one very significant way. Hear this. Depression is sometimes a spiritual issue and sometimes it's a physical one. There are physiological issues that, that can lead to depression that have Nothing ultimately to do with the will. So in other words, if that's your condition, if that's your state, it's not your fault when that occurs. Medical conditions like that are are a byproduct of brokenness. They're a byproduct of the fallen nature of the world, but not always the result of individual sin. It's important to say that up front. I want to make it clear. That's not the kind of depression that I'm talking about today. What we're talking about today is what we might call sort of the garden variety depression that can affect anyone. Okay, Sadness. Getting down. And is in fact a response of the will that can be overcome with a change of perspective. So let's talk about sorrow. Let's talk about sadness. What brings about sorrow? I'd say, Bill, there's a million things. And I say, you're right, there are. Right? So many things could be mentioned. Suffering. Loss, unmet expectations again, failures, tragedies, hurts. You've all experienced sadness and you know there's a million reasons why. And sorrow itself, again, is not a sin. Sorrow itself is not a sin. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, experienced sorrow. And the Bible speaks of a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. So the issue for the believer is not to avoid sorrow. The issue is this. It's to avoid getting trapped in it. Getting trapped in it. Getting trapped in sorrow is a worldly form of sorrow. And that same passage in 2 Corinthians 7 says that that kind of sorrow, a worldly sorrow, leads to death. What makes it worldly? Worldly. It's marked, this is important, it's marked by unbelief. So I want to say this very carefully, and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will help you hear it in the way that it's intended. When we're trapped in sorrow, when we're trapped in sorrow, the root cause of entrapment is unbelief. That doesn't mean that unbelief is at play when we're surrounded by sorrows. okay? But rather when we're trapped in them. When when we have an inconsolable sorrow. What the Scriptures want us to hear is that there's a cure for the sorrow that crushes the spirit and dries up the bones. And that cure is belief in the hopeful promises of God assured to us through the gospel, and by God's grace, by using the tools that he's made available to us to fight through it. So that's an important point. Experiencing sorrow isn't the issue. Fighting against it is. Fighting against it is. That's, that's what we're, we're being driven to. And our fighting happens by looking to the gladness and joy that Christ has opened our eyes to see. You can fight sadness and sorrow by looking to the joy that Christ has opened your eyes to see. There's a there's a, a definition of joy that I gave nine years ago. That when I first got here, as we were studying through Philippians, and I, I, I still come back to this definition often. I think it's so helpful. Joy being this: joy is the settled and unwavering belief that a very good God is always in control. Joy isn't, joy isn't always, you know, bubbliness. It's a settled and unwavering belief, even in the midst of my sorrows, that a very good God is always in control. The sorrows of this world are fleeting. Joy is reminded of that. All creation groans. That's true, but always an expectation of renewal. All creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope, hope, we were saved. And Christians, the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Those are the promises of Romans 8. Fighting sorrow requires belief. And we not only have a Savior... But we have an example to follow in Jesus, who himself knows what it means to experience sorrow. In fact, he knows what it means to experience sorrow and temptation in ways that exceed anything we'll ever experience ourselves. So I want to take just a moment here to look at this example and learn from him some practical things that can serve as tools for us as well. All right. So here's the example. Well, oh, it went the wrong way. Matthew 26. to Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with Me. And going a little further... He fell on His face and He prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. So we we know that we have this hope in the midst of our sadness and sorrow that that a good God is always in control, that our salvation in Christ assures us of our renewal, of our redemption, right? Right? But we have an example here in Jesus as well that gives, I think, some practical tools. In fact, I've got six ways here that Jesus fought, practically fought sadness. Five of which I I, I gleaned from John Piper and one I'm adding myself. First one is this. Jesus chose some close friends to be with him. Did you catch that? Verse 37, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So here's the, here's the first practical tool. Jesus didn't withdraw from people. How often do we want to do that in the midst of our sadness? In the midst of our depression? We want to withdraw, right? We want to close ourselves off. That is not the example of Christ, right? He surrounded himself with friends. He included his most precious and trusted friends In this process, come with me. Second thing is that he he opened up to them, right? He not only included them, but he opened up to them. Verse 38, he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He shared with them something very personal, very deep and, and troubling to them. He opened his heart, he confessed his weakness. The third thing is He asked for their help in spiritual warfare. Verse 38, second half, remain here and watch with Me. Another text says, pray. Another uh, says, don't let yourself come into temptation. Stay here and fight with Me. Fight with Me. Not withdrawing from people, inviting brothers, sisters in, confessing to them my weakness, And ask him to fight with me, pray with me. Fourthly, he poured his heart out to the Father in prayer. Verse 39 My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Right? It's necessary to pray for sorrow to be taken away. What did we sing earlier this morning? You are stronger. That's the prayer of faith in the midst of sorrow. Father, take it away. You're stronger. You're stronger. Fifthly, he rested his soul in the sovereign wisdom of God. And this is a really important one too, right? Second half of verse 39. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So in the midst of his sorrow, he's he's got circumstantial things going on. He could have the fear of man going on. I mean, he's, he's, he's right in the midst of being arrested, crucified. And in the midst of all that, he's he's confessing his his sorrow, his depression, his fear, his anxiety, whatever. And he's saying, ultimately, God, not only am I asking you to take this, you're stronger, but if you choose not to, I trust you. Not as I will, but as you will. That's an amazing statement from the second member of the Trinity, by the way. Right? Right? There's not a divided will in God and yet in in his human weakness Jesus certainly recognizes his potential to divide human potential to divide from the will of God yet praise God in his full divinity that's not possible at all and it's a good example for us God not, not my will, your will I trust you, you're good There's hope in that in the midst of sorrow. And then the sixth thing, which which I'll add, is that he then resolved to serve others and serve the Lord. What did he do from this point forward? He walked towards the cross. He set his sights on serving, following the will of his Father, and serving us. When you're caught in sadness, you know one of, the, one of the most practical things that you can do is to get outside of yourself. That's why it's important to draw other people in, to share, to pray with them. But, but something so simple is just to say, how can I serve somebody? Depression and sadness is so often, we're so often entrapped by it because the spiral of it keeps our focus inward. And we're not called to live inwardly. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second is like it. Love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're called to be outward people. If you're just if you're fighting off sadness and depression and and an inability to, to kind of get up and get out, there's a, there's a good chance that you're you're that way because your focus is so inward that you're not being fully alive. You're not being what you were created to be. What can you do to? Minister to somebody else. Yeah, you know, there, there's there's many 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 times that I've heard from people who have been battling through sadness or depression that getting out and helping somebody was a, was a key in in them breaking that cycle. Or just something something as simple as taking a walk. Get your hands dirty. Go plant a tree. Right. Connecting outside. Again, you're connecting outside of yourself. Most importantly, I think, serving. Piper says this. He says, so here's the lesson. When Satan drops a bombshell, a bombshell on the piece of your life, the initial shockwaves of emotional response are not necessarily sin. What is sin is not to do what Jesus did when the bomb fell in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sin is yielding to depression. Sin is not taking the armor of God. Sin is not waging spiritual warfare. I'm going to wrap up here. What's the axiom we started with? We shouldn't be ruled by our emotions. Instead, we should be guided by the truth, right? Shouldn't be ruled by our emotions. We should be guided by the truth. Again, the beauty of our newness of life in Christ is that every aspect of our lives is redeemed. Our emotions, which God initially created for us to experience Him and others, the beauty, the glory in the world, all of those things that were turned upside down by sin have been redeemed, can be made new in Christ. Your emotions are an important part of your ability to reflect rightly the glory of God, the image of God in the world. The key is to be be reminded and remember often that our emotions have been affected by the fall. We have to continually give them up to the Lord and say, redeem this. Sanctify this. Use this for your glory. Help me not to be ruled by my emotions, but rather to use them as the tool you intended them to be for your glory, for the good of others, and for the good of myself. And I'll try to fill that out a little bit more as we wrap up the series next week. And next week, again, just a reminder, we're going to talk about jealousy and discontentment. We're going to talk about infatuation and desire. We're going to talk about guilt and shame. Emotions that rightly used can bring great glory and wrongly used can bring great bone-crushing weight. So would you pray with me, Lord, as, as we admit that, We just pray, Lord, that you'd work in our lives. Lord, help us to be guided by what's true. Help us to be guided first and foremost by the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come, has died for our sins, has risen again, that your Holy Spirit has been deposited in those who by faith have trusted in Christ as their Savior. And Lord, you are making us new people. So Lord, let our emotions be rightly guided by what's true. Protect us from unrighteous emotional outbursts, Lord. From unrighteous anger. From unrighteous sadness. Help us not to be entrapped in a worldly sorrow that leads to death, but Lord, to be reminded anew every day of the goodness of the Gospel. Let us be a people who exhibit freedom and joy in Christ. Help my brothers and sisters this week. Lord, we're going to wrestle with this this week. Remind them in those moments what's true and right and noble. Remind them of those moments, who they are in Christ. And help us to be a people who proclaim Him well. Thank You for Your Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.